0: Questions about this love, what it looks like, who it's for, who gives it, who receives it, who benefits from it. And as we've heard over the past few weeks, love is complicated. God's love is complicated. And it is in this epiphany season where Jesus begins to reveal this love in who he is and who God is and who they are with each other and who we are with them, and who we might be with each other, that we get drawn into this divine mystery. And we learn that we too have a role to play, that we are involved in this holy and complex relationship of love. Complicated, in fact, might be an understatement. And I say that because it's even more than just general complexity. That can be sorted but there is no one strand we can grab onto that will unravel the mystery of God's love because we're essentially pulling information from many different narratives written by many different people who have all kinds of agendas and goals, and it's all in our attempt to discern who God is, what God is about, what God is doing. It's not only complicated and complex, but it's confusing And it's confusing because it can also be unclear. It's important for me that you hear that. The revelation of God's love as revealed to us through Scripture can be complicated, confusing, and unclear. And this morning, get ready for this, I told you, I warned you. This complexity, confusion, and lack of clarity is compounded. So, all that alliteration? All right, great. Compounded by just the sheer volume of information that is handed to us. Even though we're still pretty close to the beginning of the story of Jesus, both scripturally, liturgically, chronologically, by the time we're reading through chapters 2, 3, and 4 of each of the Gospels, there's just this vast amount of information to take in before everything begins to funnel towards the cross. So bear with me. I'm going to attempt to reach across Scripture this morning just to set the scene for what's happening. And in an attempt to main some semblance of chronological order, we're going to come back to Christmas. We just had Christmas December. We're not that far removed. We're still Epiphany. So we're at Christmas only to find that to get from Christmas to where we are today, there's a whole lot of blank space. (laughs) Between Jesus' birth and baptism, Scripture is at best unclear. At some point, his family returned from their refuge in Egypt. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that after a dream, Joseph brought his wife and child back to the land of Israel and settled in the district of Galilee in the small town of Nazareth. Luke's Gospel tells us about Jesus' family traveling down to Jerusalem for Passover every year. One time, his parents misplaced him for four days, and he was in the temple questioning the rabbis. But from all of this and those two stories, we continue with the understanding that Jesus probably had a childhood of some sort, probably had neighbors, friends, a job, all the other relational interactions that would be expected and necessary for a young Jewish man of that time. He knew people. It's not a revelation. People knew him. Luke tells us that uh, Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in both divine and human favor, i.e. he grew up. So suddenly, it's 30 years later, Jesus is, I would assume, 30, 31, somewhere in there. Jesus heads down to the river, baptized by John, tempted in the desert, And that gets us to where we are today. Jesus is now strolling around Galilee, which is an area about half the size of Albemarle County. And um, he's visiting towns like Cana, where the wedding was that we heard about last week. He's visiting Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, where he has his own house. He's traveling back to Nazareth, his hometown where he grew up, and which is the scene for our scripture reading today. Now, following his baptism, there is a point where Scripture is not unclear. All four Gospels clearly convey that Jesus was spending most of his time healing people, driving out demons, performing miracles, gathering disciples, and they all very clearly state that news about Jesus was spreading quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Can news get from here to Rutgersville pretty quick? Yes, it can. Jesus' fame was spreading so quickly that according to Mark, Jesus could no longer enter into a town, but openly enter into a town openly, but he had to stay outside in the lonely places. But the people would still find him. Even in his own house. The people would gather in such numbers that there was no room for them, even outside the doors. In fact, that's where they had to let that guy in, down through the roof. They're literally tearing the roof off of Jesus' house just to get to him. Jesus had obtained local celebrity status, and his message was going viral. And I use that modern term, viral. Because as with our modern viral events and news, the tales of Jesus' revelations, miracles, and teachings evoked emotional responses. They were timely, they were new, and they occasionally had a call to action. Follow me, Jesus was quoted as saying. And the people of Galilee they shared, they talked about, and they responded to this information in similar ways. There were people who responded one way, people who responded another, and maybe people who didn't respond at all. So this brings us to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And I will note that um, there are other variations of this same story that can be found in Mark chapter 6. And Matthew chapter 13. As to why Luke moved it back here to the beginning of, of his gospel, that again is unclear. But here we are, chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit from his baptism, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were upon Jesus and fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him and of the gracious words that came out of his mouth they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown, the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he will say, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, two separate prophets. None of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up. They drove him out of the town, led him up to the top of Carter Mountain, sorry, up to the top of the hill of their town, so that they might hurl him off of the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The word of God for the people of God. Now, This scripture breaks up pretty evenly into three different sections. And since we are seeking clarity from this confusion, we're going to break down and label these three sections as the good, the bad, and the ugly. First, the good. Super celebrity viral Jesus is on his home turf back in Nazareth. People are talking. They're chatting. They're getting excited. The whole town is worked up like the parking lot of Scott Stadium on an October afternoon. They want to see Jesus, some FaceTime with their hometown hero. They want to rub elbows with the magic man. They want their own story to tell. They want to get a selfie with the guy who changes waters into wine, with the guy who heals the lepers, with the guy who commands fish into nets, casts out demons. And what's better yet, they know the guy. He lived next door, down the street. He is finally remembered as running through the synagogue or playing guitar on the stage. They know him. And even without the assistance of social media or contemporary communication, they knew where he would be. The ancient world was equally capable of transmitting information. The people knew he would be in the synagogue. They found him in the lonely places. They had already pushed through the roof of his house. They know where he would be. Sabbath came. Jesus is in the temple. The Son of God is not going to skip church, y'all. So when super celebrity viral Jesus shows up at your place of worship, at his former place of worship, he is handed the scrolls. He is invited to sit and teach. He is brought to the front to sit in that place of honor because he has done great things, will do great things, and oh, please, Jesus, won't you do something great like that here today? We want to see it. I mean, truly, if Dave Matthews was sitting here this morning, we'd all kind of anticipate that he was going to play something, right? All right, yeah, okay. So Jesus stood up to read the scroll of the prophet given to him. He unrolled it, read what was written. The Spirit of the Lord anointed. There's good news for the poor. Release to the captive, sight to the blind, the oppressed will go free. This is the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. Everyone was watching him, waiting for what was happening. They're expecting lightning to come out of his hands for the dead to rise up. They're wanting all of this to happen. And Jesus says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone who heard him was so pleased by the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Here endeth the good. The good stops here because something happens that we don't get to fully know about. Scripture is, again, unclear. There's a shift in the room. Somebody says something, and the whole narrative does a 180. Things had been going well. Jesus was reading and teaching, offering all of these gracious words to this congregation. Anointing, good news, release, sight, freedom, favor, This is all sounding really great. Surely this must be a precursor to something amazing, powerful, and miraculous, because Scripture apparently is being fulfilled simply by our being here and hearing it. So something good is coming. Let's just get on with it, Jesus. You know us. We know you. Let's get some water jugs out here so this guy can bless them. We're ready for that, all right? Anybody who needs a demon cast out can be over here on the right. Over here on the left, we'll have uh, illnesses and other assorted skin rashes. Come on, Jesus. We're ready. We can do this. Do the same stuff that you did in Capernaum. That's what we want. That's why we're here. The people of Nazareth had heard about that. They wanted to be healed and helped. They came to church that day ready to consume, to receive blessings to receive the benefit of Christ's presence, his healing and miracles. If he can help people in other towns, surely he's going to help people in his own town. After all, he knows us. So we're more important. We deserve it. We've known you for so long, Jesus. Come on, you're Joseph's kid. You're the kid who was always questioning the rabbis. I was your babysitter for three years. You came to my cousin's wedding. I was in Capernaum. I saw it. You're the kid that never really learned to swim. See, they've had their coffee. They got that joke a little bit. 8.30 was like, "Mm." come on, you know us, Jesus. But this is the season of epiphany. And Jesus is not in this for his own edification. Jesus is not just Joseph's son. In fact, he's not Joseph's son at all. Jesus is the Son of God, and the Son of God did not come to be served, did not come to be a celebrity, to be rich and famous, popular and powerful. The Son of God came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and to reveal to the world God's complicated love. And these revelations are new and they're different. They evoke emotional responses. They are public and widely broadcast, timely and transformative. And they are rarely appreciated or received in the middle of a church service. Jesus definitely had good news to share. Good news for the poor, the captives, the blind and the oppressed. But what the congregants in Nazareth had missed was that Jesus had said the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled in their hearing Not in their consuming or receiving. The good news they had heard was not for them, at least not on this day. And that's a pretty hard pill for a bunch of church people to swallow. I am, of course, referring solely to this congregation in Nazareth from about 2,000 years ago. But just for fun, who here counts themselves among the poor? I hear you, Ricky. Who here currently lives in captivity? Who among us is blind? And are there any who are oppressed? This news is for you, Ricky. Jesus said, listen, y'all, truly. I understand that you all want or need something today. Today. But when there were great needs in Israel, when there was famine and illness throughout the whole nation, God didn't send the prophets to their own people, to the people who already knew God. God sent them out to the Gentiles, to the widow at Zarephath and Naaman who was from Syria. Dr. Ruth Ann Reese, who's the professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, explains that of all of the stories about these two famous prophets, Jesus picks two about a ministry to people who were not part of Israel, ministry done on behalf of those who were not part of the hometown crowd. And the implication here is that Jesus, like those prophets, has a ministry that is directed at those beyond their borders. He has a ministry that makes it clear that he will not be a prophet who serves special interests, but that he is a messenger of good news for the whole world, but especially the vulnerable. Jesus says, you knowing me and me knowing you, that's important. It's important because you are fulfilling scripture by hearing this but Scripture is not fulfilled by your consumption or your exploitation of this relationship. The people who know God, who love God, who have a relationship with God, do not receive special treatment from God. Thanks be to God. Amen. And when those words were said, things turned ugly. When the people heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. The same people who had sought his favor, who had arrived at the temple with joy and anticipation, who recounted to their friends and family all of the, oh, I knew him when, stories. They got up and they drove Jesus out of the town, led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off of a cliff. Again, this is just chapter 4. When Jesus proclaimed good news to the poor, the captive and the oppressed, he revealed something about who he is, who God is, and how God, as we heard, has arranged the body. Jesus said, Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled, that release, freedom, and healing were coming. And this sounded like good news to the Nazarenes, but only if that release, freedom, and healing was for them. In this revelation from Jesus, we learn that God's love is not dependent on, nor does it cater to, proximity or knowledge of God. We learn that God does not separate economics from spirituality. And in the end, Jesus' former neighbors, friends, and community were unable to accept this new teaching. They were unable to accept that God's love extended beyond their borders, that they would have to change their attitudes towards outsiders, towards people who were not them, people who were different than them, and the people they routinely excluded. And so these people, without any regard to the temple they were in, the worship service they were having or the holy day that it was, they rose up and with great anger and fear and without any legal process of justice and in the most atrocious and brutish manner attempted to kill Jesus. But Luke's gospel tells us that he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. And this single line of scripture is the worst part of Of the whole thing. Matthew and Mark don't include the whole cliff scene in their narratives, but here it is as part of our holy text, so we need to wrestle with this for a minute. Because the words and actions of these people were so offensive and loathsome that God incarnate miraculously stopped their assault and walked right past them. These people responded to the gospel of Jesus in such a negative manner that Jesus cut himself off from their awareness of him. Did he walk past them or through them? Were they hypnotized, dumbfounded? Did, did, Did Jesus turn invisible? We don't know. But we do know that they had sinned to the point of disconnecting themselves from the visible and tangible person of Jesus the Christ. And that, my sisters and brothers, is a deeply disturbing and troubling concept. It's ugly. To think that our actions, our choices, and our rejection of Christ's teaching might somehow disconnect us from our awareness of him That we, like the Nazarenes, could be so filled with selfish anger about our own perceived personal loss that Jesus would simply pass through our midst unnoticed. It's not only ugly, but it's scary. And it's scary because I think we know we're capable of it. I know that I am capable of it. We, too, have the ability to make choices that limit our visibility of Christ. And because of that, I have a few words of caution and hope this morning. I'm not a prophet. and Thankfully, I don't have to be one. But I know, and I think you know, too, that 2019 has the potential to bring about many new and transformative changes to our church and our community. We've seen some of these changes already in our church leadership, the little scrolls that Gary was handing out. We've seen this in our church branding and communication. And we see this in the dynamics of our civic leadership. And at the end of next month, we may see more changes stem from decisions by our called General Conference and the Bishop's Commission on a Way Forward. These changes have the potential to evoke strong emotional reactions. They may lead us into difficult conversations. They may be public and widely broadcast, and our responses to them will be telling. So I would encourage each of us, and as your pastor, I probably need this more than anyone. I encourage us to keep our hearts, our minds, and our ministries focused on the needs of the vulnerable, the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. We who have the benefit of reading about the mistakes of the Nazarene congregation have the opportunity to fulfill Scripture not only through our hearing, but also through our doing, through our sharing, and through our living into the fullness of being a church that Christ calls us to be. Through the witness of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, God calls us to join them in relationship and in the holy, difficult, complex, scary, confusing, and unclear ministry of conveying and demonstrating God's love to the world. And we are most effective in this ministry if our focus and if our priorities align with those of Jesus. So over the next year, I invite you to engage with the divine and confusing mystery of God's love by pondering what it might look like to consume and receive less on Sunday mornings while maybe creating or giving more. To consider the time, attention, and resources we expend on inward and outward ministries. And lastly, to refrain from throwing people off of cliffs, especially when those people are Jesus. Amen. (sighs) Every day we have the opportunity to be people who go to church or people who are the church. And there's a difference in that. So now I'll ask us if we can join together in prayer and pray about God's kingdom becoming tangible with the prayer that Christ taught his disciples as we say together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.